Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. India's come a long way since November of 2016 when Prime Minister Modi pushed the country into a new age of digital payments by outlawing larger denominations of the Indian rupee, the 500 and 1,000 rupee note. In that time, India's made uh, market improvements and is, uh, in fact, in some ways ahead of a good number of developed jurisdictions in terms of uh, digital payments. Our guest today, Aaron Kamath, and his colleague, Puru Katain from Nishit Desai, one of India's premier cutting-edge high-technology law firms, is going to talk to us about several issues, including the evolving landscape of fintech models, digital lending, e-wallets, cryptocurrencies, taxation, virtual digital assets, and CBDC in the European. So gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Aaron, Puru. Our pleasure, Ajay. Thanks for having us. Finally, we uh, we got to do this and quite a few of uh, our listeners and, and uh, viewers are in India. So when we first started talking about this late last year, uh, there were certain proposals regarding the E-Rupee. And uh, now we're well into 2023. And, uh, you know, what, what what's the landscape looking like now? I mean, what, what uh, in terms of the evolving landscape of fintech models, I mean, the... Uh, the, the factors driving it and the the investments that are going into it what, what do you what do you see what yeah it looks quite exciting I mean just the the number of startups we're seeing it's it's been phenomenal I mean fintech in India is 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 flourishing it's booming uh let's look at maybe some of the factors why it's a it's lot of cottage in- industries right not not it I mean they've yet to attain a certain scale but or is that a matter of time so we so it's it's a mixed it's a mixed bag with with that respect, but I think it signifies the overall health in the sector, right? Um, for example, in the last eight years, we've had more than twelve hundred investments, foreign investments in the sector. That's averaging one hundred and fifty deals a year, right? Right now, we have a large amount of unicorns, and those unicorns are spread across, you know, payment companies, um, you know, blockchain, uh, crypto focused exchanges stock trading and you know dmat accounts um you know pos terminals wallet and fintech upi companies so it's it's we'll, we'll come to some of these models in more detail but it's been thriving what has been contributing to that well if you have to say i'd say there are two phases in india's fintech history right one is with the whole turn of the century you know the dot the dot com boom you had then e-commerce you know come in in the 2000s you know flipkart just started out um you know now you know Walmart acquired, but you know Flipkart started out, and later on Amazon came. Um, yeah. You know we had these e-commerce players start, and that was really the first step because a lot of that gave way to the payment gateways to facilitate the online transaction. And and you know for me that is the real that was the first step in in fintech. You know for the for the PayPal sort of companies to come and process those transactions online, right? Uh, we had very very basic set of regulations, you know, in two thousand nine, um, you know, that just asked them to that mainly govern the fund flow. It didn't require licenses, nothing, but it just said, you know, use a nodal account and you know certain permissible debits and credits. Uh, but that that really started. And then, as you said, post demonetization, really, you can count it as sort of a, you know the next innings in in India's uh, you know fintech um, you know landscape with you know that immediately overnight. Um, e-wallet 
um, UPI was still picking up. I don't, I, I'm not sure we even started UPI when demonetization um, happened, or maybe it was not that big, but, but that gave a big boost for e-wallets. And immediately, you know, the likes of Paytm and all got mass, their, their valuations skyrocketed. Um, and obviously- this you know, And this happened so quickly. This was like within less than a year, you know, you, you yeah. saw such innovations. And I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? When your back's against the wall and you're forced to get creative to survive, people right. can come up with wondrous things yes. under such circumstances. War, for example, often does that to people or desperation and necessity. And so, so many innovations came about because of that. Books have been written about it. Students have done dissertations about demonetization, galvanizing India, uh, payment systems. So, uh, some people do feel lost out. They feel they lost out, but it modernized the country. Definitely. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the problem we spoke about, right? Where cash was not accessible. Right. The people started loading their e-wallets. People started loading their MobiQuick phone pay, Paytm wallets. And those companies then, if you ever, if a fintech ever needed a boost, well, the government, well, indirectly just gave them the biggest boost that they got. Everybody started using e-wallets. Uber, you know, was linked with a Paytm, so you could pay through a, through a Paytm wallet. Everything, people started linking wallets to everything. It's changed now a little bit with UPI and, you know, we'll come to that and some of the models, you know, which has, which has come in. But India has always been a, a country, obviously the population, you know, we are 1.3 billion people. We have at least eight or 900 million people connected to the internet. Um, data, internet, telecom services are amongst the lowest priced in the world, right? Everybody has internet from, um, you know, different streams, different professions, you know, a security guard in his free time is watching a cricket match on his phone, uh, you know, sitting by the gate, right? Um, everybody has ready access to the internet and that has really facilitated Transactions. So India is hot for low value transactions, but high volume transactions. And that's why it's a country that can never be ignored. And, you know, till today, whether it's the fintechs, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's gaming, media, streaming, you cannot ignore, you know, 800 people connected to the internet um, and such a wide consumer base. some point, the numbers make a difference. I mean, I think as Stalin said during World War II, the Quantity has a quality all its own. And yeah. uh, we, we see that even in Macau, that most of the Las Vegas casinos gaming revenues now come from, come from Macau, more of them, because of yeah. the billion people in China next door, many of whom like to gamble, more, more so than Clark County, the district in which uh, Las Vegas sits. So yeah, I mean the 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 numbers clearly make a clearly make a difference, and and it's it's also different. Um, we're not just talking about financial services, but that that's what everyone seems fixated on, because of you know the benefits, the money to be made, uh, how it can transform the economy, but also the consumer fraud issues, uh, yeah. how, how you safeguard uh, that. So traditional the traditional role of payment service providers vis-a-vis yeah. card networks and banks. I mean, this is a fundamental shift in the licensing regime. I remember um, some years ago, I attended an ACAMS event, the money laundering people. Um, and 
they uh, someone from a bank in Abu Dhabi pointed out that for a long time banks have been uh, they've gotten lazy and complacent. They thought the world couldn't do without them, and and he said people need banking services. They don't necessarily need banks. So now you're in a new age with telecommunications providers providing banking services. So how, how should they be regulated? How should they be licensed? Definitely. I mean, just just taking a step back, you know, to, 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 to set the context, right? Yeah. India has always had a, a good, steady banking system. Right. Um, because inclusivity know, was a key thing from the start. Absolutely. And, and, and if you look at, I mean, just from a cultural perspective, the, 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 the mindset of, you know, the Indian society, the culture, um, you know, the working class, the middle class is, you know, to save, put the money in the bank, you know, have a retirement corpus. You know, it's a very, it, it, it's, it may be a little different from the Western culture. Retirement, you know, it, education, it, weddings, those are the big three, right? Yeah. yeah, you know, money in the bank, you know, for a for a rainy day, if, you know, for, save up for a wedding in the family, uh, for retirement. In the house, and, yeah. And the house, so yeah. Indians have always been very dependent on the banks, right? Now, we've had regu- the Banking Regulation Act from ni- 1949. The Reserve Bank of India, you know, who's the, 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 the regulator, you know, for the banking and financial institutions, they, the, that, that, the act was, you know, made in 1934. So we've had very old you know, regulations, but how have traditional banks, you know, worked? Traditional banks have been the backbone of, you know, India, the Indian, the, the saving mindset, the economy, right? But somewhere down the line, things were not really coinciding with the technology advancements, with e-commerce, with, you know, digital models. And somewhere whilst banks have always been trustworthy, safe, you know, to deposit money, um, you know, to, to, to take money out, to transact, all of that. Somewhere in terms of the innovation, you know, the, the, the fintech aspect, there was some amount of R&D, some amount of technological innovation, you know, which was not at a very high pace, or at least not at a pace commensurate with the technology around. And right. in a way, you can't really blame a lot of the banks, you know, being public sector banks, government-run banks. Yeah, there are private banks as well. But again, with the traditional banking mindset, their focus was not on tech. Their focus was not on a you know, uh, an easier, faster, smoother technology interface, right? Their, their focus was always on processing, you know, a, a, a transaction, um, you know, a remittance, for, in, for instance, right? And then what the, happened... Doing the job, yeah. But, exactly. But, but, brute force. but I mean, when you go to the government, state, state banks in India, yeah. even to this day, they don't, have to, they don't have electronic bill counters. So somewhere, I mean, the... the the technology focus, you know, from the traditional banking system was not there. So you had a lot of these players, these technology companies that came and said, hey, you know, we can work with the banks. And that's how it started, right? That's how the payment gateways first came and said, you know, I will, a payment gateway would contract with, you know, 50, 60 banks, scheduled banks, commercial banks, um, you know, nationalized banks, PSU banks, and say that, you know, I will then partner I will partner with these banks. I will partner with an e-commerce site to help them process you know, card transactions, internet banking transactions from all these banks. So it's really where these tech companies, um, you know, came and said, we will work with you, you know, and, and that has evolved, right? So you have today, for example, you have the concept of a payment aggregator, who is an erstwhile payment gateway that actually uh, helps in processing the transaction, right? right. You know, the, the PayUs and the razor pays, um, similar to what PayPal does, uh, you know, overseas is that they, they help process. So they, they route the money, um, you know, so money goes from user 
to the uh, payment aggregator and then gets um, you know disbursed to the merchant but you also have payment gateways now who are technology service providers so they for example will still help you know they can help in you know kyc related work in you know document work in the underlying technology to ping you know the the api integration for the transaction so you still have tech providers right now and obviously you had the card networks that also came in now the card networks in india still ultimately do not process uh, the transactions but the rbi had said that you know if you are a card network you know the visa mastercards um, you know diners club diners club uh, you know kind of uh, businesses they still need to register with the rbi uh, with the reserve bank and they have arrangements with the bank as well because they help pinging in the in the transaction right when their cards are swiped right so they all play a key role in the transaction but what we've seen are these new age tech companies who are coming up with very innovative models and we'll we'll come to it when we, when we speak about lending uh, you know just technology services that's led the rbi to introduce outsourcing regulations because as you said right banks um, have limitations especially technolo technological limitations um, you know of their own so they outsource a lot of the tech work now both internally as well as customer focused tech work they outsource it right so we have you know the rbi has had to come and say that hey if you are outsourcing key functions you know in your banking system like your card management software you know your tool your internal tool your security you know all of these things you need to ensure abc is done by your vendor you need to show you need to ensure that there's oversight you know monitoring and control over your vendor because ultimately the buck stops with you being the licensed entity right so we've we we've seen this come up right now this has led to issues you know you spoke about licensing regime now what has this posed now we've had so many models where now you know fintechs have come in some of them have been handling the funds some of them have not been handling the funds and just being mere tech providers so what has happened is that there there has been a fine line between fin and tech right and some of the tech companies that came into the the bfsi sector have crossed over that line into the fin element right money flows to them they handle the funds in the transaction you know things like that the rbi in the last few years have has sought to regulate those entities handling consumer funds the rbi has always been a very consumer friendly consumer focused regulator and said that so, is, so let me stop there so as they see there's a difference then between facilitating a transaction versus actively being involved in financial services absolutely absolutely so for example today a payment aggregator the erstwhile uh, you know the razor pay pay use um, you know stripe in india you know adyen um you know cashree these are the kind of payment aggregators who process the transactions right they we will partner with an e-commerce site website and you know help in processing the transaction through upi wallets banking cards they are now brought under a license agreement because they're they doing this under the imprimatur under the banner of xyz banking or financial institution i'm just a technology provider yes but not any more because funds is being routed through them so there is a period of there is a period of time in the transaction you know t plus 2 t plus 3 days where the money is sitting with them in their nodal or their escrow account and that's why rbi has now put them under a licensing regime and you know as of now we have about 51 uh, we've had at least a couple of 100 apply for application i'm sorry apply for authorization as payment aggregators and we've had about 51 given in principle approval so far 
So this has happened in the last couple of years. You know, the approvals have been given as recently as a few weeks ago uh, to a few months ago. Um, but yeah, essentially, if you know, handling the funds and when we come to lending, it's, it's, it's a very similar concept. But if you are still merely a tech provider, you know, if you are providing an interface or a backend service or an outsourcing service, not involved in the fin element, then you still fall out of the purview of the RBI regulations. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that it's a tempting market. You want to cater to it. You want to service it. But then there's this panoply of regs that uh, you may be in this net, this regulatory net you may be ensnared in. And I think we see parallels with the crypto people, right? That um, you, can't, you can't be a de facto stealth member of the financial system and play by your own rules, which many of them for the longest time were saying that, now less so. But when Bitcoin first came out, when I was speaking at the first Hong Kong Bitcoin events in 2014, 2015, there was this hardcore anarcho-libertarian fringe group uh, who were amongst the most uh, loudest advocates of Bitcoin and crypto who didn't want any regulation. And they... they uh, they saw the mainstream or middle of the road approach of working with the banks and getting them to use blockchain technology in their processes as a heresy, as an anathema, because the feeling was once you get the banks involved, they will manipulate the technology and use it to their own uses and the, the beneficiaries will not be the, uh, the general public, you know depositors and uh, you know customers yeah i mean i think the i think the rbi the reserve bank the government in general has been you know just touching upon the subject it's been pro blockchain yeah. and it has been promoting blockchain to be used you know in in the banking system um, you know we we'll come to the separate topic on cbdc or e rupee and how that's now working on the blockchain um, but as a concept they have been pro blockchain and wanting to adopt it in the securities uh, market, SEBI, you know, the, the banking system, uh, and all of that. But he's not that sanguine on crypto. He feels crypto is very dangerous. Okay, so I guess we're opening that uh, that can of worms now. Then Ajay, <laughs> people people have their own ideas, but um, but having said that, there every just about every night of the week. I would say there are like seven to 12 different fintech or crypto clubs or groups or associations meeting in Bombay every night that, that yeah. any number of events I could go to. So right. the enthusiasm is not less. So the stand of the Reserve Bank of India and actually the Indian government in general, and we were, uh, you know, Puru and I were attending a, a tech conference last month where the IT minister, uh, you know, he's a cabinet minister with the government, Mr. Chandrasekhar himself clarified the views of the government. And it's what, you know, we've known for a while, right? The government for the last few years um, has not been pro-crypto, right? And if you see the latest paper on CBDC, they have clearly said that, that there are risks with crypto. It is unsafe. The value fluctuates. You cannot create a parallel currency. The Indian rupee is not freely convertible. And hence, you cannot just buy trade exchange rupees for crypto and they have given these reasons and they have and building upon these reasons they have said here this is the e-rupee which is a safer form now let's let's go back let's say why right now the i mean 
again, I'm coming back to the, you know, the, the, the real ethos behind this, right? The Indian government, the Reserve Bank has always been taking an approach to protect consumers in India, protect the Indian individual, right? Uh, and this comes back to a cultural aspect, you know, the savings mindset, do not lose funds. So when a lot of people lost funds, lost savings, you know, the investments in crypto, you know, took took a plunge, you know, that was when the Reserve Bank had to come in mind. And it's, it's a very similar thing with Singapore, right? You know, with, with the whole Terra Luna, you know, that happened, you know, last year, a lot of Singaporeans lost a lot of uh, money, life savings. The Singapore government had to come and had to step in and say, you know, we are going to clamp down a little, you know, um, uh, tighter on this. You know, they, they're debating, uh, you know, more regulation under their payment uh, services act. You know, they were debating it in, in, in parliament as well. Um, because it, it is then at this stage that the government steps in, right? And where we stand today, let me tell you very clearly, right? Crypto today is not specifically permitted, but it is also not specifically prohibited. We do not have a specific law on cryptocurrency today, right? So since the Supreme Court judgment, you know, which our firm, um, you know, um, worked with and, you know, won for the industry to set aside, to constitutionally challenge- Delhi High Court? the Indian Supreme It went to the Supreme Court. So we were for the industry, you know, uh, represented by the IMEI, the Industry Association. And we had the RBI circular telling banks to not deal with cryptocurrency. We had that struck down as unconstitutional and they set aside and withdrew that circular, right? And since then, the government has been working on a regulation. Initially, it was called the prevention of a cryptocurrency uh, draft uh, law. It was then changed to the regulation of cryptocurrency draft law. We didn't see that bill. Um, uh, there were, you know, whispers and rumors that they may allow crypto to a certain extent, you know, through a whitelist model. But honestly, that was never going to be practical because things in crypto happen so fast. You can't set up a committee to study one <laughs> cryptocurrency and six months later approve it because then the whole boom has happened and it's come down. That's not really... in, by whitelist, you mean approved on an ad hoc <laughs> basis after consideration was, deliberation yeah. there was a thought process based on what the underlying asset based on what the underlying um you know trigger for that crypto is they mm-hmm. would maybe have a committee study it and then say okay can we permit it can we should we not permit it uh, oh sorry it was deemed not permitted but should be whitelisted and actually permitted all of the all of this did not fructify it was just contemplated you know by the government and it's not seen the light of day we still don't have a crypto law in place but the view the stance of the government has been very clear right and clarified by the minister um, you know himself and time again you know by the rbi is that no crypto right for the reasons uh, that i mentioned they've told the exchanges um, again there's no law but you know banks have not been supporting the exchanges banks have been pulling out so they are not processing deposits withdrawals from crypto exchanges so a lot of crypto exchanges are basically cut off at the legs right coinbase entered india they had upi and that was a big thing you know they partnered with upi within 24 hours upi was pulled out so users couldn't use upi for that and that was a big setback right so the banks you know, the UPI are under pressure from the RBI not to support, not to facilitate transactions with crypto exchanges. So they're basically cut off at the legs. Yeah, it does, does, seem, that, does seem that way that um, they're eager to enter, but the, there are just too many obstacles that have been placed in their way. So if we're talking about digital lending and the evolving models, buy now, pay later, and the recent guidelines on lending apps, 
what what are your impressions? So lending is something that has picked up a lot in in you know the last two or three years, right? Um, especially with the especially with with COVID, uh, I, I would say there are a lot of these apps that you know say will will give you a loan in two minutes, right? A lot of these small value loans up to you know about five hundred thousand rupees, um, you know. So um, wh- what has happened here is that there was. A lot this, of is, this is unheard of that that kind of you know easy credit in India. Easy credit, yes. Easy loans, easy credit, loan approved in in two minutes. I mean, compared to past years, I mean, I, I don't recall it being like this ten years ago. So that's the fintech. That's yeah. the fintech development. There were there were no apps ten years ago to to do this. Now I'm getting messages. There are so many of these apps that say, in fact, you are pre pre approved. pre-qualified for a loan how i don't know because i don't have a relationship with these people so i don't even know how but so that's the thing right so a lot of these apps have come in and they partner with banks in the back end so a lot of these are just tech providers um you know they partner with banks in the back end it's not a lot of it was not clear how the arrangement works but they were giving these loans and we and there were a lot of issues with these apps right uh, and we we've actually had to advise a few corporates on this so what these apps would do and these are not official apps of ba- maybe banks or you know big players there are a lot of these um you know some of them fly by night apps some of these not so well known apps right so what do they do they come and say you know loan in 2 minutes they charge really high interest rates there was a huge problem from a data perspective where they would take a lot of your data a lot of app permissions you know we had a couple of cases where employees you know of corporates you know clients came to us and said that they're getting harassed internally in the company because some employee has taken a loan and bec- and while taking the loan the app has asked for permissions on the phone from the from the the, the borrower's phone a- accessed all their contacts and now calling up their contacts and threatening them wow and even yeah and even saying that you know the the borrower has named you as a guarantor whereas actually that hasn't happened um or you know you're a friend you're a family you know you need to make the so these kind of things are happening you know they take app permissions they collect your data share it um a lot of harassment so a lot of um threats uh extortion blackmail uh harassment calls um you know visiting uh, residential addresses a lot of underhanded means to recover the loans so there's a lot of these practices that were reported in the last few years uh, enormous high interest rates um you know all of that even even charges even to prepay the loan there were high charges so a lot of this was um you know very unfair unreasonable illegal in a way and um, you know against the consumer so the rbi had to clamp down on this they just introduced digital lending guidelines you know to to regulate this yeah no i, I never i never studied uh debt or creditor relations either in the us or in india or even Hong Kong, but uh, yeah, it's it's important to. In fact, know. in India, I mean, you 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 know about it. So India, over the last two three years, has banned multiple apps. Most of them, you know, uh, Chinese apps because of you know the unfortunate uh, scenario of you know political uh, you know tensions between the governments, right? Um, so they've they've occasionally every few months issued blocking orders, you know, to the app stores. and the the web hosting providers to block these apps the biggest being tiktok 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 is banned in india right since right. 2020 if i'm not wrong 
um, and we had Indian homegrown substitutes and all of that. You know, Beauty Cam. You know, these kind of apps are quite some of the popular ones, which which were banned in India. Um, and you, last- you saw, well, I won't say social upheaval, but in certain influencer communities, some kids ended up committing suicide. Because TikTok yeah. was life. Yeah, and again, the, the government recognized that, right? I mean, uh, do you remember the Blue Whale, uh, uh, you know, challenge, the Blue yeah. Whale game as well when that came out, right? And, um, you know, the Indian government, the Ministry of Information, uh, Technology, Electronics, we call them METI, you know, they had to, you know, come out and say that, you know, this is, um, you know, even social media, even if, you know, there's no legality, it is, um, you know, affecting... Uh, people causing a sense of um, you know they, they came out specifically against the blue game uh, the blue whale uh, game because that was uh, that was you know uh, uh, you know criminal uh, that had criminal implications you know in terms of aiding abetting suicide and you know multiple uh, possible offenses yeah. but even for TikTok and a lot of these apps you know the reason behind blocking them was you know security of the of the country uh, data flows you know the impact. That they have on the Indian society, on users, right? Um, and they block them. Just uh, what I was saying was even on lending, they just blocked ninety-four more lending apps a couple of weeks ago. Wow. They then unblocked a few after the study, but they blocked almost a hundred digital lending apps because of these malpractices that are that are done. And the problem is, you know, you have a lot of the middle class, maybe the lower. Um, you know, middle class, maybe, you know, people not so savvy who will not read terms and conditions, who will not do, the, do their due diligence or look up a particular service or reviews, you know, when they see that, hey, you know, you can get 10,000 rupees of immediate credit, you know, they'll just sign, they just click accept. And, you know, they don't think, or they may not know or be aware of the hidden charges, the high interest rate, possible harassment that's going to come their way through calls, you know, visits, um, you know, to their residents, calling up their contacts if they make a default. They, they possibly don't know about these consequences. But that is how they were getting bullied and consumers were getting harassed. So the RBI had to come up with these measures. They came out with a press release also, you know, describing a lot of this, you know, um, anti-consumer, you know, harassment and, you know, behavior by some of these lending uh, apps. And, you know, they had, they had to clamp down on it. I can see how it might be tempting if you're a laborer and you're moving to a big city. And the money just, you don't stop spending. Certainly in a city like Mumbai. I mean, it, it just uh, for, certainly compared to what they're used to. So if you're tech savvy, a lot of the young people, you know, they're getting e-wallets. And uh, I think you pointed out it's leading to co-branding and white labeling issues and cross-border flow issues. Um, I mean, it should be pointed out that e-wallets need to be treated with care that and even just the notion that you can put your crypto coins on a flash drive and put them in your pocket that that's that's not completely safe either i mean there are multiple ways to hack e-wallets and um but in certain places in the world where people don't have faith in the banking system they don't have faith in the government the currency Crypto has been used as the hedge, and e-wallets have uh, facilitated that. So, I don't know what, what are your what are your what are your thoughts, or is it, 
should should everyone grow accustomed to such modalities even if they don't necessarily use them that much just understand how the technology works so i think i think there are two aspects to it I'll, let, let me start with you know the vanilla you know e wallet how it has um, you know come up and well there's a bit of a revival operation you know going on for e wallets and i think it's mainly the gaming industry keeping it you know operational but let me let me throw some flavor on that and i'll ask puru then to step in you know on some of the the you know the newer models in terms of you know crypto in terms of tokens you know attached to some of the securities you know and some of the models that he's seen but e wallets as a concept you know has been around you know for a decade or so now right um they started off as basically very small you know you know um, up to i think 10000 rupees you can keep with you know very minimal um you know submitting very uh, minimal information you know and that limit was now increased to about you know 200000 with more kyc uh, you know documents but essentially this was made to facilitate transactions so this came pre upi right and this was the next substitute you had to a debit or a credit card and let's understand that credit cards though it's a big business in india barely less than 10% of the population actually have credit cards right uh so this was more of a alternative uh, sort of a safer model to debit cards you know there is though though there are um you know security related points and um aspects and you know otp two factor authentication requirements and all for card transactions there are obviously still some risks you know with with transactions you cannot rule that out so e wallets was always meant to be uh you know those kind of wallets to facilitate very small payments right, right? um that has aided the gaming industry so the gaming industry in india uh, has really thrived through the use of wallets in fact we have a lot of even on um, offshore gaming operators who you know offer games in india um, you know from you know, they have you know wallets outside india where you know users can de- uh, deposit money uh, and all of that and you know the indian government has even recognized that and said that you know we understand that indian users have money in you know overseas wallets that they may use for gaming purposes or you know regular shopping you know things like that all that we ask is you know disclose it in your income tax returns you know what money you have in your wallets outside but so they're going to exercise jurisdiction exercise jurisdiction in terms of disclosure from a tax perspective that's it not in terms of regulating those players they can't regulate those players right but coming back to you know the the wallets in india um there was a licensing requirement um if the wallet was what we call as semi closed or open now there is a closed wallet there's a concept of a closed wallet um where if there is a website and if they issue a wallet or a point system or a gift card and if i can use it only with them that is closed right um but if there is an issuer and if i can use that wallet or gift cards or point system with others as well that becomes semi closed and that falls under regulation right you need a license uh for that and again there are minimum net requirements of almost a million dollars similar to payment aggregators you know what i mentioned uh, earlier so these wallet providers were brought under licensing uh i'm sorry were always meant to be under licensing you know regulations right uh, for semi closed wallets for example a ptm wallet uh being a mobi quick or a phone pay wallet i can use across merchants i can use it when shopping on you know um amazon or you know nike.com um, or you know even a mcdonalds or a food delivery app or you know various merchants whom they are tied up with these are regulated right now with upi i i know upi is you know next on the agenda so i won't touch too much upon that now but with upi the e wallet market started declining right 
people felt that there was no purpose there was no reason or practicality in having a wallet anymore when i can just transfer money to somebody with a mobile number through my phone i can scan you know, if i need to transfer money to puru i can just scan the barcode on his phone or take his mobile number and transfer money to him upi has made it that easy right. there's point, no point point to point transfer no intermediary and there's no purpose for me to load money in my wallet you know which is one transaction and then transact with him which will go to his wallet and then once it's in the wallet you can't you can't even take it out i can't i can't take it out as cash or back into my bank account there are restrictions on that right so it has to be in that wallet until i spend it on something else so i mean indian users said no, this is a little too much we have upi now so the the wallet industry sort of uh, took a big hit right with upi um the the government tried to you know give, give some incentives and said you know if you come for a license earlier they used to give for example a license for 5 years for a lot of the the play, the, the entities issuing wallets you know now they said we'll we'll give you a lifelong license you know there are some businesses like you know quicksilver oxygen who do who are in the business of white labeling wallets you know mm-hmm. um so a lot of e-commerce sites a lot of apps that have their own wallets or you know semi closed wallets are actually uh, co-branded or actually white labeled by these wallet providers so that's a big business um you know all uh, together so they try to revive it wallets are still relevant mainly for gaming um where you can use wallets across you know fantasy sports apps um you know social gaming apps casual gaming apps um and all of that so that it it does provide some amount of ease you know for that but that's from a pure you know money payment perspective but maybe i'll you know loop in uh, puru to have his um, say on you know how these models have also evolved from a crypto token nfts also relating to more legitimate you know stocks and gold and you know those kind of models okay. actually uh, let me just pick up pick up from the gaming industry like like how aaron said gaming industry it's uh, it was a breath of fresh air for uh, digital wallets or e wallets and uh, since upi came in and became popular the even the use of wallets came down but just like uh, the just like the gaming industry there was also the crypto industry which also saw the wallets uh, the wallet products as an opportunity right uh, beginning uh, i think in uh, around 2020 2021 when there was a real boom a uh, lot of we saw a lot of uh, cryptocurrency exchanges in india uh, partnering with e wallets so that you know they can try to buy crypto on an exchange i think you know people would remember that uh, Wazirx had a integration with uh, Mobiquick and everyone could uh, load their Mobiquick wallets and then trade on Wazirx now that was an arrangement alternative to say me directly paying to Wazirx and which might have some uh, which may or may not be supported by banks so we saw a lot of models coming around that time during the crypto boom uh, a lot of exchanges partnering with e wallets but after that i think you know when the rbi also started uh, you know not supporting or you know putting the pressure on banks and payment aggregators and payment service providers to not transact uh, where crypto is involved then we also saw wallets kind of pulling out of uh, getting into these arrangements with uh, a lot of crypto service providers so we also saw the you know the the rise and fall of these uh, uh, these integrations so it's quite uh, interesting to see how you know wallets kind of interacted with crypto products there but on on the other hand we also saw a lot of uh, uh, you know like lately also there has been there been a lot of wallet providers who operate uh, not just in india but across various countries right we have we have a lot of non indian wallet providers also now 
of course there are uh, there are crypto service providers there are nft uh, marketplaces etc who have also engaged with these uh, international uh, wallet providers and who still continue to do it so even now for example if i if i have to buy uh, an nft on opensea i can maybe pay through my the usual payment methods i can use my debit card or if it's enabled for international payments i can use my credit card if the banks don't process them the, what what opensea or rarible etc do is they also provide me uh, uh, a payment maybe through something like a circle wallet where i actually load the money and then pay through these uh, wallets so there yes there are you know this uh, it's it does provide some alternative uh, opportunities for payments uh, uh, towards crypto or nft products so there yes we have seen uh, uh, you know there has been some kind of development and it also kind of uh, continues engagement with uh, users who are still not that tech savvy but still want to kind of uh, uh, you know uh, buy crypto products or buy nft products like like aaron said right like till now it's not that there has been any uh, regulation or any express restriction since the rbi circular got struck down that prohibits people from undertaking crypto and nft transactions which is kind of also helping uh, wallet oriented products uh, in uh, this way I mean, on balance, it seems as though, from a consumer standpoint, India is moving ahead because people are getting more choices. But of course, it com- you know it complicates the payment landscape, which brings us to how do you regulate crypto? I mean, is it? And this has been the problem from the beginning, right? Is it? Is it a digital commodity? Is it a currency? Or is it a payment system? And, you know, true Bitcoin acolytes would say it's a three-sided pyramid. It's, 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 it's all three. Uh, but I mean, depending on which side they present to regulators, it's going to get a different, different kind of treatment. I mean, in Hong Kong, the HKMA, our de facto uh, central banking, banking regulator has said, these are digital commodities and you trade them at your own peril. Um. I think a lot has happened in the last you know few years, you know right from when you know the RBI came out with the circular, I believe it was in 2018 when they came out with the circular to um, to ask banks not to deal with cryptocurrency. And at that point of time, banks pulled out from supporting exchanges. Still, then you know it was done. A lot of people bought, you know, started you know jumping on the crypto bandwagon. Exchanges were flourishing. But once that came in, you know, banks had to pull out and then users couldn't deposit funds, withdraw funds from the crypto exchanges. And they, again, like I said, they were, you know, cut off at the, um, you know, at the knees, right? Um, you know, since then, once it was overturned, uh, you know, between the Supreme Court, we've had sort of a, a lull. We've had, and as of today, there is, there is a certain amount of tension, I would say, ambiguity on where things are heading, what is, you know, what is really happening. But I think the sentiment is quite known. And as I said, the government is, time and again said that they are not in favor of crypto in India. The Indian rupee is not a freely convertible currency. Um, Cryptocurrency has too many risks associated with it in terms of the fluctuating value that it has um, in terms of the, um, you know, what it is codependent on. Um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, moving up and down um, the scale. And, and that's why the, you know, the RBI has pointed out these risks and they said it's, it's, 
it's it's not a safe it's it's not it's not even a currency it's it cannot be synonymous it cannot be a substitute for currency um and you you know you cannot you know you shouldn't use it um you know as a form of uh, currency i mean these are the observations they've made in the concept note on cbdc which is the digital uh, rupee that they've come up with and we'll we'll come to that you know how it's looking and you know we tried out the model just last week so uh, we can you know shed light on how it's working practically as well but these this is what they came out with the consult- with in their um, in their report so the sentiment is quite clear they are pro blockchain technology again there's always that argument that how does blockchain work in isolation without crypto and a lot of the you know the more tech savvy uh, technical people or the engineers would be in a better place to you know make that debate uh, but we've heard we've heard you know both sides and there is a strong debate that you can't have blockchain itself you know without crypto um but that anyway that's a separate that's a separate point altogether i guess crypto it's a matter of what do you apply the technology towards right the same basic principles of physics give us plumbing but they also give us aerospace right yeah so it's a matter of what uh, I mean. The engineer, for example, if I were to reason by analogy, the curriculum at engineering schools is the same for the first two years. Yeah. So it's a matter of what do you apply that underlying technology, those principles towards. I mean, people are talking about other uses for blockchain, such as the, you know the the three party ledger system, uh, in terms of uh, cutting down on mistakes made in hospitals which you know we've seen in the hospital system in hong kong i mean that that type of thing that, that, that um, using blockchain to ensure accountability but of course the tendency tends to be you know how can this be capitalized what what's the most how do you make money off of it and in that light yeah then then naturally you're gonna, you're, you're always going to associate blockchain with currency right cuz that, that that's in a sense, that seems to be the easiest way to um, monetize it, to cap, to, to capitalize on it, to derive some economic worth from it. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point that you actually brought up, and somehow maybe the government might not fully agree with you. Uh, this there was a national uh, blockchain strategy that the government had released early in maybe 2021, uh, Jan Feb, and one thing that I observed in that report is out of the whole report, maybe. Cryptocurrency itself has been mentioned some four times, and maybe two of them were to just bring out the fact that you know cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have blockchain as the underlying technology, and the other two times was just warning how cryptocurrency has a lot of legal challenges and uh, they should be regulated and made sure uh, they are done in an accountable form. So that way you could say that you know blockchain can best be monetized through crypto but somehow the uh, you know the government would not fully uh, agree with you if you ask them and we have seen a lot of actually uh, even new age business models that are trying to come out with you know having only blockchain based applications which maybe do not at least interact with crypto at the customer level maybe at the business level at the back end they do but at least at the customer level they try uh, not to so th- we do so- sort of see some innovation uh, uh, growing in that end but right now that is the stand and even the government has said that look as of now if you ask us uh, if you are, if you ask how the indian government uh, will regulate we are not looking at regu- uh, we are not looking at bringing out a regulation until we see say a global consensus on on uh, or maybe even a consensus at a g20 level i think uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi had also uh, mentioned it uh, uh, a few weeks back. 
that that if there is a consensus at at least on an international level that is the stand that india will then take it i mean there's this amongst the pro crypto crowd the proponents the advocates of crypto there's a sense there's a, uh, of inevitability that uh, that they're going to win in the long term and this requires state support the state has to permit it and the sovereign wants to be the one to mint the coin of the realm so i, I don't think you know I, I, they are they are allowed to get away with as much as the governments let them get away with but this brings us to the next point i mean most i think most governments see crypto as a virtual asset a virtual you know a digital asset a commodity um and most of them are in favor of taxing it in a but in a, a developing country like india that that's made many strides but i mean a country of a billion how do you how do you tax crypto right i'll i'll take that uh, ajay but i think just just before coming to the tax tax aspect right let's let's yeah. i just want to spend some time on you know what are the other issues on on crypto that's there today right since we 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 we've opened that can right i mean we we spoke on the a the te- the, the technology you know blockchain you know versus crypto interdependence and you know pro blockchain uh, against you know crypto and um, you know the regulation but i think when you look at you know when when puru said you know they may be looking at a possible consensus at a global level and see where things go let us also understand that there are various stakeholders in india as well where consensus may be made right one of them is a the tax department what you said right a very important stakeholder right um let me put it this way the government is in favor of banning crypto but the tax department wants to tax crypto and has already started taxing crypto yeah. right so let's i mean let's look at the i mean this gives us a flavor of you know the mindset the approach and the, on the on the other side you know you have things like um you have uh things like um uh, anti money laundering right you have the enforcement directorate you have the intelligence wings monitor transactions with crypto exchange so there are crypto exchanges running today right uh through very few banks I mean, they they see the national security implications of it though. exactly exactly and they they then see see because they still have to monitor the transactions because let's let, again let's remind ourselves there is no law today prohibiting crypto or right or trading crypto buying crypto so you have these wings who are monitoring transactions and then who are running you know behind the exchanges saying that you are uh, facilitating transactions handling user money remitting it you know have you done kyc where are you remitting it to is it going out of the country for what purpose is it going is it for example um, terrorism financing is it to a fatf black or a gray list country you know uh where it's not supposed to go to or where it's supposed to go to after an approval or a disclosure to the government so they are going uh so this is this is not a direct crypto regulation but you have these regulators um or these enforcement authorities who are going after the exchanges after the players and some extent the payment processors you know um uh, you know for example during covid this this was booming and you know you we had uh, we were dealing with a lot of cases uh, you know ed had gone behind them for a lot of there were a lot of anti money laundering cases registered on routing money to and from chinese nationals um you know in and out of the country onwards you know what was the purpose 
all of that you know uh, raids you know production seizure uh, search seizure documents uh, transaction records so you'll have you know so you have that happening uh, keep in mind there's a tax de- department who's who's already in the last finance act um, uh, you know in, introduced tax measures um, you know for it uh, you have even the reserve bank uh even mate who is talking about you know storing logs doing kyc uh you know uh, you know conducting customer due diligence um and all of that and um, well you still have the banks who are very conservative and fair enough i mean they are they are licensed and they are you know uh, answerable to the reserve bank um but they are very resistant to facilitate um you know crypto uh, crypto cousins or crypto related transactions cross border transactions ad banks are not um, you know um, hesitant to do that and you know because of all of this trade exchanges have lost liquidity right you've had a lot of homegrown uh, exchanges that have had to flip and we've had this discussion uh, you know you and i over the phone a lot of them have flipped to dubai uh, initially flipped to singapore um, you know founders have moved to dubai uh or you know uh, to, to the gulf and you know they now moving outside and maybe just setting up headquarters holding structures you know in other entities i'm sorry in other countries and maybe just dropping down in india entity or maybe just operating from outside india but that whole uh you know charm of india grown startups exchanges now unfortunately you know that's not been the re- the regulatory regime has not been favorable to them and you know we've we've had this as a result yeah that ecosystem has largely i think moved there and they've got vara the virtual asset regulatory authority yeah. by the, yeah. the first regulator of its kind that speaks their language is yeah. very lenient willing to give them what they want i'm not necessarily sure if that's a good thing but they have they have their um it has become the playground of the crypto rich the nouveau riche that have the new wealth that has been generated from this and uh you know let let's see what uh, what risks happen right i mean the next time we have a you know the the crypto winter of 2022 23 the next time something like that comes along i mean we'll see how many people get burned uh i mean in terms of in, the authorities in india asking all these questions you were saying with with an eye towards aml kyc that's understandable because the actual blockchain record itself is not a complete record i mean as we and this is a recurring thing on the show that it tells you where the money went to and from point to point navigation you can do that you know the quantum of the transaction you know the amounts involved uh but you don't know who the parties were their nationalities their backgrounds their families their professions their industries and as we know for most banks in the modern age the, you know you get a certain risk weighting and that you fit into their risk matrix somewhere um yeah. you know so it, it crypt, uh, the the blockchain only works for a regulator or a law enforcement doing an investigation if they've got the other pieces of information and those are the questions you're saying right that as soon as crypto is involved they're asking you 120 other questions uh to complete their records so that they know you know the full details of who's involved in this transaction yeah pe- people regard that as cumbersome so i can 
in order to not deal with that, I, I can fully see where they're going to Dubai. So now we come to the topic of CBDCs, and that's a hot topic in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, as we know, nation states can't have cryptocurrencies. They have CBDCs, but you know, now people are talking about the e-rupee, and I guess it's different from the digital currencies that we have in the digital money we have in our accounts because, you know, CBDCs are unique in that each e-unit of currency has its own serial and registration number the way <laughs> a banknote does. So it's unique in that sense. What does it add to, to payments to have unique units of digital currency as opposed to right now, okay, this person has X in their account, another person has Y in their account. Those units are not necessarily distinguishable. They're fungible. Well, yet to be determined completely. Yeah. This honestly looks like a measure, you know, by the Reserve Bank um, in a way to clench the thirst or satisfy the appetite of Indians who want to do crypto, um, but, you know, who shouldn't do crypto and instead, you know, it's a CBDC, so it feels like you're doing crypto, but it's not really crypto, right? Let me tell you why. So e-rupee or the digital rupee, that is the CBDC. So it's not a separate currency. It is the rupee. It is just a digital form of the rupee. So, and the ratio is a one is to one. So if I have one rupee in my bank account, if I have a one rupee coin, or if I have one rupee as an e-rupee in my wallet, it is all the same. So it is nothing but an extension or a digital form of a rupee. So that e-rupee, unit of e-rupee, does it have a counterpart in the real world? Yes. Yes, it does. It does. It, it's nothing but a additional extension of it. Uh, and it's okay, let, let, let me tell you maybe let, let me tell you a little more and I've, I've, I've used the uh, currency. Um, it's just been introduced by some banks. Some banks have gone live with it. So I, I happened to just use it last week. And um, some stores have also started accepting Europeans. I think Reliance, some branches of Reliance, Reliance. retail stores have oh. some some branches of Reliance retail stores have started accepting Europe, right? Yeah. Um, so okay, let's let's start with what you know Europe you know, really is, they are calling it a virtual, uh, they, they are calling it a currency, but the, the reasons for introducing it are basically to reduce operational costs, wear and tear of money, printing money, banks, you know, issuance, a lot of that. They want to promote financial inclusion, um, help in cross-border payments, reduce a lot of fake currency that may be in the system. So these are a lot of the principal, you know, conceptual level reason as to why they've come out with this. Also, what I said, they've identified a lot of risks with the virtual currencies, you know, what, you know, with the, the value fluctuating and, you know, the anonymous, the, you know, the, the risks uh, associated with those currencies. So that's why they've come out with this, which is basically an E or a digital form of a rupee. There are two versions. One is the retail one and one is the wholesale one. The wholesale one, they started back in December. Now, these are typically used between banks and financial institutions on a B2B basis, you know, for buying government bonds, for transacting internally, all of that. It doesn't concern us in the wholesale. Those industry. are like bulk transactions. Yeah, you can say yeah. that. Yeah. The What is more relevant to us is the retail version, right? And this is basically an electronic version of cash. Let me call it that. Um, it's it's um, 
it is like I have money in a wallet now. So it's, it's very similar to a wallet, what I said. So now, for example, um, I have say an ICICI bank account uh, or a state bank account, whatever. I can open a, a wallet, a CBDC, an e-rupee wallet. From my bank account, I can transfer, say, 100 rupees to my wallet, and that becomes 100 e-rupees. And in that wallet, I can go transact with a, you know, a retailer. Uh, again, scan the code or pay through the app or whatever it is, but essentially that 100 rupees gets transacted, right? So it's very similar to a traditional wallet where you load money from an external source. Here it's, you know, I have a bank account, I have an e-rupee account, I can transfer 100 rupees from my bank account to my e-rupee account and use it from there. Uh, personally, in my opinion, I, I uh, why I said it's yet to be determined, you know, how far this goes, how, how much of a success there is to this, because we already have UPI today. And I, again, the, the concept of loading uh, a wallet with money to then transact to the POS when today I can directly transfer money to Puru as a peer P2P or a merchant, a P2M, just by a phone number or a barcode from a UPI. So I feel though UPI is still a payment mode, uh, this is another form of a sort of a currency. So technically it's not the same, it's not a substitute. But I feel when you have the UPI mechanism there, it's at least for a consumer, from purely from a consumer point of view, it's an easier way. You're to achieving the same that. end. Yeah. Exactly. So why do I want to load my wallet with, you know, convert my physical money in the bank, um, you know, to an e-rupee and then use my e-rupee wallet to transact when I can just directly transact by UPI and money goes from my bank account, you know, to his bank account through a mobile number or through a barcode. It's just one step. Um, yet to be determined. I feel I feel it's it's a stopgap measure to really clench the appetite of people who want to you know dip their fingers into you know these virtual currencies and you know like it were you know they were dealing with CBDCs or you know you know crypto or whatever. Um, but yeah, because the way you've described the landscape in India right now, it's more of a novelty, right? I mean, it. it practical necessity isn't there because there are other there are other means to achieve the same end that, absolutely that absolutely people are already used to absolutely the long-term benefit and upi has skyrocketed. i know i know we have not spent time on upi we, we, we we'll, we'll come maybe to upi and you know what's been happening um especially um you know internationally um but it's i mean it's it's it, it upi in india has been a game changer right um, we have like what seven, RBI releases statistics every month, every quarter. And it's now 70% or something of transactions are through UPI. 70%. Last time I checked, it was 60. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's really give or take. I mean, um, yeah. I think Puru can just open the latest RBI. We, we give you the exact yeah. figure, uh, uh, payment uh, statistics. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy number. Again, small volume transactions. So the yeah. per, the average, volume or the transactional value of the UPI transactions will be less. It could be anything from one or two rupees, which is one or two cents also, you know, to, you know, some thousands, you're not going to have big ticket transactions through UPI, but yeah, it's, it's changed the landscape of consumer payments in India. Now, someone said to me, when you see a grandmother buying a packet of biscuits using that payment method, then, then you'll know that the penetration has gone deep into society because people are using it for routine. Again, as you said, small scale transactions, individual level. And uh, 
it does introduce certain efficiencies, but we must add that the civil libertarians feel that their transactions are being tra tracked. But I mean, if, if you look at uh, the people who've been predicting this for a while now, the futurists, uh, you know, forward thinkers, science fiction writers, they're always, there's always been this notion that in the future, because of the number of people, number of volume of transactions, a lot of things are going to be digitized just simply for administrative ease. In, in much the same way that AML gradually became automated all around the world because the number of transactions banks had to deal with, even small and medium-sized banks, you could, you could not hire enough manpower to look at every single transaction, only the ones that are red flagged. So, um, what about the cost savings? I mean, in terms of uh, accounting and auditing and, and you know payroll savings. I mean, massive, massive, massive. So, um, I'll give you I'll give you an example, right? And uh, I'm I'm a little old school, so sometimes when I when I go to the bank for some work, I still take that passbook of my. I don't know if you remember, it's a it's still issue passbooks. They do, <laughs> at least for some for most accounts. Maybe not a. Uh, uh, MNC banks, are, but it, it, they do, and under law, they still have to, right? Um, so I, sometimes I take the passbook and give it to the clerk to get it updated. And now what they tell me is that they say, "Sir, there are so many transactions. Do you mind if we just give you a separate printout of it? It's easier for us to right. print than to, than to keep changing this up, this passbook in the printer and keep changing pages for it to print." <laughs> you know. Let me just give uh, you an aggregate report since the last time you updated it. Yeah, so all they need to do when their computers open the PDF, put account statement from this day to this day, and print it out for me. But they will not. I mean, they, they're very resistant because there's so much work in updating that passbook. But that shows, uh, or they said, "Sir, can we just email you the transaction, the your account statement, or whatever?" Um, but that that shows that. How many that shows the increase in the number of transactions so earlier? The, you know, the, the example you gave of the grandmother, there's so many times now, you know, you, I can walk out without a wallet, without paper money, or even a card with just my phone, and I can buy pretty much everything, right? From, you know, vegetables, fruit, you know, the side of the street. I just need to scan their barcode. Now, where it's reduced costs is because they've reduced MDR. In a lot of cases, there's no, there's no MDR. They're not charging the merchants anything. They were charging them about 2%. I think they've reduced that in most cases. Uh, now there's a lot of uh, these merchants and it's, it's allowed, you know, even the street vendor and India is a very big, has a very big sector, as you know, for, you know, a lot of, you know, the street businesses, right. As right. in Southeast Asia, you know, um, it, it, it's very, a lot common. of SMEs, a lot of small on, on carts and stalls and you yeah. know, on the road, the side of the road, it's allowed them to accept payments because today I don't have 10 rupees in my wallet. I don't have small notes or, you know, but it's allowed me to, and it's allowed them to accept payments and it's kept them in business. And a lot of these people, small shops, they just need to pay, if I'm not wrong to some of these people, like a hundred or hundred and fifty rupees monthly fee, which is $2. I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing. And it helps them receive thousands of payments, unlimited transactions. It's, it's a great incentive for them. A lot of the, as you said, the labor class, yeah, the labor um, class, yeah. The not so sophisticated. Well, it's what we started with, right? They have smartphones today. They have an internet connection and data because it's cheap and affordable for them. But they leapfrog multiple generations because India went straight to digital. Yeah, yeah. And today you can get a smartphone for sub, I don't know, five thousand 
but um, less than a hundred dollars equivalent so you can get a smartphone you have again you have emis we spoke about digital lending buy now pay later <laughs> all this so they also take it on emis very easy to get emis and they do it on. but they have a smartphone they have data and they have upi so it's very easy to transact with them even you know a few rupees um, if you need to so a lot of them are, are on this i mean india is ahead of the us even in, in, in a lot of these digital payments that, that I mean, I, I remember when I started, when I first set foot in the US in 95 to start college. And at the time, it was like the average American might only carry 20 US dollars in their pocket, but they'll carry multiple credit cards. But now we have a point where you have contactless payment and credit cards are passe almost. I mean, because of the strides ahead and and you know it was it's good because then in that sense india was able to avail itself of the latest technology wait and see approach seeing what works and this certainly has worked for india in the time we've got left um is there anything you want to talk about anything you want to showcase so so i think in, i mean just spending a couple of minutes on the tax you know where we where we lie just just for closure you know on the whole uh, you know tax aspect and that does affect nfts and you know some of the virtual digital assets what we call so the first definition as such we have of vdas or digital assets or virtual digital assets is from a tax legislation so i mean it gives you a sense of how widely things are scattered here you know in the landscape um, the issue was that that regulate that definition was defined very broadly to include data sets, um, you know, any virtual account. It was defined very broadly, but then there was a clarification that was issued, so it would not affect the airline miles reward system. And you know, Puru, feel free to add, uh, you know, after this, but it would not affect, you know, that. But typically, your, uh, you know, crypto NFT, something with you know value in it, you know, over the um over the blockchain right and they the where it hurt the industry ajay is that they introduce a 30 percent income tax on it the catch there which you know added uh you know insult to injury was that there's no set off now today if i'm trading in stocks right securities what i sell if i'm making a gain i pay tax on but if i'm making a loss i can set that off against my gain Correct. or even carry forward to next year. And that is a benefit I have with stock trading, for instance, right. right? I don't have that now with VDAs. So if I take a loss, if I buy for hundred, sell for 80, I have a loss of 20. I cannot set that loss off that 20 off with a gain that I make. Yeah. Just 30% off the 30% of the net. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm selling something else for 120, I make 20, I pay, 30% on that 20. I cannot offset the, the, the 20 deficit or the 20 loss or the 20 profit. I cannot do that. And that's a big um, thing here. There was also an additional point on a 1% TDS, which was put on the exchanges or the e-commerce guys. And they had to do a 1%. And that was operationally very difficult for them to do. And then the you had issues. So tight. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they wanted accountability and to keep it exactly what you said. And then you had the definition so wide um, that you had, it, this affected NFTs. Now, NFTs was going, you know, as, as um, you know, if, if there was a sale of an NFT, right, there may be, there may have been a, a problem of double taxation on it as well. So you have the NFT value, but if that has an underlying asset, like a musical work or a performance or, you know, or, or an artwork, 
then that has underlying value and that may also be taxed because that asset is getting transferred if at all it is getting transferred right straight um, given that it's a derivative work exactly but if it has an original work as part of it that's getting transferred the rights are getting transferred yeah. then there could be a double taxation then you have to argue that it's just the nft which is a derivative and not the original work right. but then again you need to get into that nuance right um again what about minting now it, for minting nfts how do you attribute a cost to minting nfts versus you know selling an nft for a high amount there's no cost of acquisition there if you're minting it and selling it right, right? so no basis to deduct absolutely yeah. absolutely so then if i mint my cost is say i don't know the gas fee or the, you know whatever even if it's zero or five but if i'm selling it for 100 does that mean the 100 is tax with it it did, um, you know, create a lot of uh, confusion, but that's coming to force. They've taken a tough stand on it. Uh, you know, Puru? Yeah, just a minor point there. Uh, actually, the tax department had also given a clarification that minting requires an infrastructure, right? You have to have like a uh, lot of computing power to actually uh, mint and put those tokens in the blockchain. Now that can't be set off as cost of acquisition. That is something that the tax department does not recognize as cost of acquisition. So that is also so something that- the cost of mining is not, that cannot be factored in? The infrastructure. Oh, wow. And it's getting increasingly more expensive to mine. Yes. Yes. So yeah, that's that's a slight complication. Uh, yeah, you, I think on the UPI, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. and I think we can, yeah, I guess, you know, start uh, concluding. Um, I think the two biggest developments, Ajay, has been on UPI, uh, and on lending, lending we've touched upon, but let's talk about UPI, right? We've we we flirted with UPI throughout the course of this conversation, but UPI has been an absolute game changer. We spoke about, you know, seventy percent. There were eight billion UPI transactions alone in January, eight billion, right? So you can see the volume of transactions happening, right? Um, but what is interesting, what is relevant from a global perspective here? And you know you can add you know from a Asian perspective as well um, is that now we have tie-ups with about ten countries. Just yesterday or day before yesterday, um, you know Prime Minister Modi and the Singapore uh, uh, Prime Minister as well announced the tie-up, uh, you know between India and Singapore for UPI, you know between the RBI and the MAS, and now UPI is linked with PayNow, you know DBS Bank uh, in Singapore. And some banks have gone live with it for inward and outward remittances. We also have announced a separate arrangement with the UAE, you know, for cross-border linkage of UPI. Now that India has always been a closed country in terms of inward outward remittance. I'm just explaining the context here, right? Traditional money going in, okay, fine, little easier, but money going out has to be heavily accounted for. You know, it's heavily regulated. Like I said, foreign exchange regulations, convertibility of the Indian currency is a very regulated. Uh, space in India. There are industry sectors where you can't remit outside. There are prohibited transactions. You can't send money outside, right? There are limits. You know, you have LRS, overseas investment, all of that, um, compliances, a lot of that. So for this to happen... That's why the wealthy in India are moving to Dubai. I'm telling you. They, <laughs> they don't, I mean, they, they don't want to deal with those headaches. Yeah, I mean, if so. I mean, I know th this doesn't affect, you know, the, the, this is more than the everyday, the peer-to-peer you know, P2M transactions, the UPI, but this is a big thing because if this goes live and uh, I, I really want, I mean, in the next few days, and I'll, I'll be in touch with you, but I am going to test the India, Singapore. Uh, they've gone live with it. Some banks have gone live with it, inward and outward. I am going to test it to see whether I can pay merchants there and pay my peers there, 
right? And if this happens... Is it limited to people with transactions of 100,000 or above? Yes, actually, there was a limit. Yes, I think there's a one, the one equivalent to 1,000 Singapore dollars, which is 60,000 rupees. Okay. I read that. You're absolutely yeah. right. 60,000 rupees or 1,000 Sing dollars. So, so there are limits. Are, there are yeah. limits. Yes, absolutely. Even for UPI today, even in India, there are limits. So it's not that I can transact lakhs, you know, hundreds and thousands of rupees or millions through UPI. It's meant for, you know, lower value. Uh, so in a day, I think it's, um, they just increase the values, but um, yeah, it, it largely depends on bank. But I think in a day, it's now a maximum limit of a, maybe 100,000 rupees or 200,000 rupees. Okay. Uh, yeah, I that's think some that's banks may allow 500,000, but there are limits to UPI today as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, this will be going back to the cross-border, you know, they're in talks with other countries as well. But this will be a game changer in terms of sending, you know, relatives, friends, money, making payments to merchants. We're looking to see, because we cater to a global market, right? Basically, MNCs, operators who want to do business in India, target Indian consumers. And if they can possibly look at UPI as a payment option, which as of today, they can't, I mean, till today, they can't. That is a big thing. Otherwise, Operating from outside India, a Singapore merchant, you know, say who are running a, a website selling to Indian users, you know, they can't do anything that other than rely on credit cards, which barely 10% of the population have. But if they can tap UPI and get paid in UPI, that will that, that will really change the dynamics of cross-border commerce. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the UPI, the cross-border UPI. Um, and Amex, by the way, doesn't have great traction in India is what I hear from the market. Uh, a lot of uh, POSs, merchants don't accept Amex, transaction failures, not as uh, successful as Visa, MasterCard. Uh, Rupee is the homegrown card network in India. So the Indian government is promoting Rupee a lot. Uh, incentives, cheaper transactions, um, you know, cheaper for banks to issue, all of that. So the Indian market is a very, and maybe we missed touch upon, touching upon it in the start, it's a very price sensitive market as well. Right. Yeah. So a lot, a big incentive for users today is cost. Now, a lot of, you know, for, for payment, uh, for fintechs, wallets, even, you know, possibly lending, um, all of these things, UPI, onboarding UPI users, a big incentive today is lower cost, cashbacks, discounts, coupons, incentives. For a user to, I mean, it's India's a very different ballgame when it comes to data and giving data. So Indian, most, you know, Indians would say, okay, fine. I don't mind opening a new account with, with a new UPI company. If I'm getting a hundred rupee cashback or my first three transactions or my first five transactions, I'm getting a big discount. They will do that. It is a price sensitive market. And it's brutally competitive. I mean, we were talking earlier about how tech savvy different banks work, right? Is this necessarily a, public versus private sector divide, or is it more of a Indian bank versus foreign bank divide? It's not really an Indian bank versus foreign bank. It's more of um, a consortium really of the Indian banking industry. And moving away, I mean, not so much banks in fact, Ajay, I think it's more on the FinTechs because the FinTechs are tapping user bases. Their consumer bases drive up their valuations. And in the last decade, we saw enormous valuations. We saw people, SoftBank and you know the the um, you know the all the American uh, P investors come in at very large valuations. The Sequoias and the Tigers, and you know a lot of them, the you know the Matrix and you know all of them came in at very high valuations. 
right? And now there's a correction happening in the last few years, but that's you know global trends and all of that. But they drove valuations up because they were able to show that I have onboarded so many users. And to onboard so many users, I've given them cashbacks. I'm burning money on marketing. I'm burning money on cashbacks, incentives, freebies. But I need to acquire a user base. Today, the, today there's a huge e-commerce uh, uh, competitive um, uh, spirit, let's say, in the grocery, grocery delivery sector. Yes. Right? Where it's become so competitive that earlier, you know, you get next day delivery, but that's not happening anymore. It then went to two hours. Now it has come to 10 minute delivery. And there it's got back, it's got gotten a backlash from, you know, the community, from society, from investors saying that you, you should not do 10 minute delivery. How, I mean, it's, you know, households don't need groceries that urgently. You're putting riders on the road at risk affecting their safety, driving up congestion um, and you know disobedience of traffic laws on the streets. So that was met with backlash, but that just shows how competitive the sector has come for apps to offer 10-minute delivery now. People have pointed to that, that the Indian market is brutally competitive. Very. How, how, how do you turn a profit? That, that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, uh, if you're following the Indian stock market, a lot of the new age tech companies, the e-commerce fintechs are not, they're not, I mean, you know, uh, when Paytm listed, you know, what happened with them, um, you know, Nika, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it, Policy Bazaar, uh, IPO, a lot of these new age fintechs, profitability issue. Um, and after Paytm, a few fintechs delayed the IPO, they didn't go public uh, because of that. So it's ultimately, you know, there has to be a strong revenue model, which a lot of fintechs don't have because traditionally they've had a lot of investor money, you know, and flexibility to burn that money. But now things are changing, it seems. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. A lot of things happening, a lot of excitement, and I'm sure we'll keep speaking because there, there will keep being new things and developments to speak about and keep us engaged. We hope you'll come back. Thank you again. And to our viewers and listeners, thank you. Until next time.